there's a, an importance in remaining current within the market, seeing the direction that the market is taking so that your analysis of a potential investment is made on the basis of where you will see it in five or 10 years time. Hi, I'm Rob Langton. Our interview series delves into the lives of Australia's most respected property thought leaders and decision makers and uncovers what makes them tick. This is the interview. It's a pleasure to have with us this afternoon, Alan Fife, OAM. Alan, thanks so much for your time. Walk us through some of your, uh, say, childhood and, and upbringing. Where did you grow up and, and what are some of your earliest memories? So I grew up in Wagga uh, and was uh, uh, very involved uh, in the family business, uh, which was uh, principally produce and logistics-based business then uh, went to boarding school uh, in Canberra for my high school uh, education and then off to university in Sydney for my, uh, for my final part of my uh, educational journey or what I thought was my edu- final part of my educational journey. It's sort of, it's lingered on a little bit further my educational journey and uh, I think my grandchildren now uh, have assumed that I must be just a really slow learner because there's no way they want to uh, be learning for as long as I have been. So, anyway. And what was it that you learnt at university? I actually was a lot more interested in working part-time in a real estate agency than I was uh, in my academic studies, which were largely associated with economics and, and politics. It was more a case of getting it out of the way, I think. My undergraduate years were very much a part of satisfying my family that I'd, yes, gone to university and I ticked that box and I was going to get out of there as fast as I possibly could and get on and, and do something. And, and as it transpired, I went back uh, to Wagga to uh, work in the family business for quite a while after completing my undergraduate degree. and. Uh, and then uh, realised that my, my passion was real estate. And uh, so whilst we had undertaken some uh, retail development and office development in Wagga, uh, that, that I wanted to broaden our family exposure to real estate. And that, that then took me to uh, the north coast of New South Wales, mm-hmm and I worked for a period uh, in property uh, development uh, in Port Macquarie Mm -hmm. and then moved back to Sydney to join Jones Lang a long time ago. I can't remember how far back. And how long were you at Jones Lang and what was the role? Uh, Jones Lang were interested in establishing uh, a business in the financial services area. And so I went in uh, to the equity, as distinct from debt side, of financial services. It was uh, being led by a chap called John Austin, who was an exceptional mind, and or is an exceptional mind. And uh, it, was, it was a great innovation because I think uh, Jones Lang identified very early in the piece that there was going to be a role for uh, institutional investment banking style services in real estate as well as uh, the pure intermediation functions and uh, and the a group of very bright people who were in Jones Lang at the time 
saw this, saw the opportunity and, were, and, and built a team in that area. It was a very, very good time to be around uh, Jones Lang. And you later joined Grant Samuel. Tell us about how that opportunity came about. There were a couple of things happened. I, th I think there was a period uh, when Jones Lang were losing their focus on the financial services side of activity. Um, I, I, had, um, I had a client relationship at, um, when I was at Jones Lang with uh, the Packer organisation and I was providing advisory um, services to the Packer family and uh, to the Packer group. And it was uh, the senior executives at uh, Packers that asked me to leave and go and work with Consolidated Press. And um, I spoke to my father at the time and he said, I think you're probably more valuable to uh, the Packer family if you're outside rather than inside Consolidated Press. I shared that view with the Packers and uh, they recommended I go and speak with Ross Grant at Grant Samuel. And so that's how I finished up at Grant Samuel. And uh, I arrived with a business plan of this is what I think a real estate investment bank looks like. Uh, he looked at it, uh, Ross Grant looked at it for 24, 48 hours, called me back and said, look, I really, frankly, I don't understand what all of this means, but you've got a fantastic referee in, uh, in Kerry Packer. Uh, so how about uh, you come and set this thing up. And so I had a blank piece of paper and uh, with that I was able to uh, work on the development of a concept for a real estate investment bank. And what was it like working with Kerry Packer? Oh, it's amazing. Probably one of the most generous men I've ever been involved with. Uh, all I ever saw was his patience uh, and generosity toward people. Amazing man. And so different from many of the images that we sometimes see portrayed of, of him. Um, I tended to work with uh, people in his organisation, so it was very rare that I referenced necessarily to him, um, but there were uh, people like Ray Stone and others who were instrumental in the day-to-day -day operations of their uh, business and uh, I, yes, I, I really enjoyed my relationship with those people, it was exceptional. So you spent 16 years, I believe it was, at Grant Samuel, you set up their property division. What did you learn throughout that time? I think there were three things that I learned. Firstly, uh, there were definitely deficiencies in the agency intermediation model that we could um, uh, supplement and uh, that particularly pertain to sale and leaseback transactions. Uh, the, and, and toward the end, Grand Samuel dominated major sale and leaseback transactions. The David's Holdings transaction, Qantas uh, transactions, um, uh, Woolworths, there were two large Woolworths transactions. I think the second Woolworths transaction uh, was probably the largest single logistics transaction of its type in Australia. Um, we also uh, did things for the Australian Wool Realisation Commission where they had warehouses scattered around the country. So there were, there were some large, uh, intensely organised sale and leaseback transactions that we conducted. And in addition to that, 
there was uh, the opportunity to explore the area of real estate private equity. Uh, it was uh, a subject that had, was emerging or an enterprise area that was emerging in the United States but was largely untouched here. And it was interesting that uh, uh, Macquarie Bank uh, with Bill Moss and I were both approaching it slightly differently but definitely coming from the same um, genesis uh, and, uh, and that really led to Fife Capital because uh, that identification of the opportunities in the private capital market sector as seen from the public markets, the listed REITs or whatever, um, uh, that really reinforced in my mind the opportunities for growth in that area and also the ability to more effectively align what you do and what other people would like to be involved with you in doing as distinct from the public capital markets which are far more uh, regimented and also uh, the um, uh, the regulatory overlays that you get in the public capital markets don't necessarily align with the longer term wealth creation objectives of the investor group that support the private capital markets. And so we're very oriented toward those private capital markets. And you mentioned Five Capital there, as I understand it, you founded the business in 2006. How has the business grown and what are some of the services that you offer? Our growth rate has been relatively steady. Uh, you would definitely question the wisdom of anybody starting the, a business right at the uh, front end of the global financial crisis. Uh, I, I wasn't committed as a consequence of that, but um, it definitely changes your attitude toward um, uh, enterprise establishment and you do start reading very carefully in those early days uh, the survival rate of small businesses and start, you're starting to wonder whether you're going to be one of those catastrophes. Uh, but for us it was a matter of just head down tail up. Uh, there, was no bit, there was no sophisticated business plan, there was no major strategy, it really was a case of head down, tail up. If somebody asks you for something, you say yes and work out how later. And um, we, were, we were very, very well supported uh, by some large families who um, uh, assisted us, one family in particular that was just always there, always supportive. And, um, and we took uh, responsibility for some of their investments, some of their real estate investments, and looked after those for them. And uh, yes, that was the making of us. Growth-wise, uh, it's been pretty steady. Uh, even through the GFC, we were managing growth of around 55% per annum, and we've maintained that rate of growth. Wow. So it's it's been steady and entirely organic, so there's been no acquisitions of businesses to achieve that rate of growth. And just in terms of your client list, without naming names, are they uh, high net worth individuals and private officers who approach you, or are they those sort of groups that you've known for a long period of time and that trust your judgment and the team's judgment? 
well, we're in a trust business, no trust, no business. It's as simple as that. Um, and uh, the, the composition of our investment partnerships uh, varies. Uh, we have a number of Australian pension funds or superannuation funds that support us. We have European and American superannuation funds that also support us uh, and invest with us. Uh, then in addition to that, uh, a number of uh, US university endowments, uh, some foundations, uh, some life insurance companies, and a very substantial group of international family offices. Uh, family offices in aggregate capital terms would be around 24% of um, the capital that we're responsible for. It's a very important part of it. And aside from being the founder, your current role, as I understand it, is Chief Investment Officer. What does that involve on a sort of week-to-week -week basis? Nothing gets bought unless I agree to it. It's as simple as that. Uh, so certainly there's a, an importance in remaining current within the market, seeing the direction that the market is taking so that uh, your analysis of a potential investment is made on the basis of where you will see it in five or ten years' time. Because we, we embrace uh, a McKinsey model, which is the three horizon theory. There are three horizons to um, an in investment or an enterprise. In this case, we look at it in terms of real estate. So we'd like to be able to see that there's a first horizon of value add, there's a second horizon of stabilisation and then there's a third, so the asset has a third dimension to it. <clears throat> if we can't see that third dimension, we're not particularly interested in making the first investment. We like to be able to see well forward. So if we're acquiring an asset that is immediately capable of some um, improvement in its value, that alone won't usually compel us to make the acquisition or the investment. We will be looking at what happens afterwards. Has it got an afterlife and then an afterlife to that? And unless we can see that, uh, we, we tend to shy away from the asset. And where are you seeing the most amount of growth or opportunity within the investment and real estate sectors at the moment? The market's been distorted for the last 12 months because of COVID, but um, notwithstanding that distortion, uh, our concentration from inception has been on logistics real estate. It's uh, an area where my family's been involved uh, for more than 50 years, so it was almost part of the, uh, part of the DNA of us. Uh, we understand it from an operating perspective. I think I'm one of the few people in my role that has a heavy vehicle driver's licence. I actually can drive the trucks that, and have driven the trucks that move the goods. And so uh, logistics at the moment constitutes 75% of our total portfolio. Uh, then we have around 22% of the portfolio allocated to office. And then the balance is in uh, retail just a smattering of residential, which is residential for us is more of a byproduct of our activity rather than um, the mainstream. We have never been enthusiastic uh, about retail in the time that Fife Capital has existed. 
uh, we uh, initially felt that uh, the rents retail tenants were paying were in excess of what they could afford in the long term. That is now proving to be the case. Uh, and then in addition to that, because of our uh, window into what's been happening with logistics, it's been quite evident to us that the growth in logistics had to have a knock-on impact somewhere, and it was clearly having the impact on retail. So there's, there's been great caution with respect to retail. Uh, we, we do like high street. We, we like freestanding structures. Um, we're um, very concerned about where the major mall and major department store uh, businesses will, will go in the longer term. Let's unpack the logistics and the industrial side of the business then. No doubt you would have seen how much more competitive it's got in the last couple of years with some significant players both uh, here in Australia and from overseas. So what are the fundamentals you look for in an investment in, say, the logistics sector? That has changed a little bit in the last 12 months. So I might uh, just start breaking your question down into two parts. I think prior to February 2020, uh, we had a balanced concentration on, um, on major logistics, uh, Greenfield built a suit. Uh, post uh, the inception of the pandemic, uh, we've seen a number of changes. Uh, Pre-pandemic, we were relatively cynical about the concept of last mile. We weren't sure that it was going to apply to the Australian market, whereas, for instance, in uh, Singapore, we see that it's uh, you know, a very relevant factor. Uh, New York uh, or in the five boroughs, definitely relevant. London, probably more so than just about any other market. So you're either in, inside the M25 or you're not. Things like that or circumstances like that. Whereas what we're seeing uh, in Australia now, particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, is that there has been a significant shift during the pandemic toward um, more hub and spoke related uh, distribution regimes where uh, the last mile facilities are becoming more and more significant. We will build uh, in Sydney in the next 12 months uh, our first multi-level logistics asset and it will be set up as a last mile facility very much in a, in a city. And you also mentioned the commercial office portfolio was weighted around about 22%, I think you mentioned. So what are you seeing are the, the challenges within the office sector at the moment and how are you adapting to those? Again, if you'd asked me two years ago, uh, I would have said aspirationally, I, we wanted to own nothing more than some very large office buildings. <clears throat> We're very glad that our capital didn't match our wishes at the time. And so uh, for us right now, the most uh, uh, important, I guess, observation I would make is that the very large buildings that have been developed for high density occupancy will be underutilised. Uh, buildings that have been built for uh, densities of five to 10 uh, square metres per person um, are, are going to suffer from an underutilisation because I think that occupancy densities will move closer to 
back to 15, 14, 15 square metres per person. Uh, that's going to disproportionately increase the operating costs of those businesses, or of those buildings rather, because those buildings um, uh, have got lifting, air conditioning, lobbying, all of the things, all of those important uh, attributes, all of that is, is geared to a higher occupancy level than, than I think business owners will want. Let's talk about one of the recent acquisitions you made, and as I understand it, that was the Castlereagh Club here in Sydney for about $20 million in 2019. Mm -hmm. What was the impetus behind that investment? Uh, that, that was a yield-based investment. Uh, we, we liked the passing yield. We liked the financial stability of the occupier. And uh, we saw some scope for, uh, you know, for further development of that asset, which, which is now taking place. Another one of the projects that you had on the go was the York and George development, which won uh, numerous awards. Tell us about that, if you could. Uh, York and George was acquired very much, or the site was acquired um, during the GFC. Uh, We'd always had a strategy uh, when acquiring rural property uh, to not talk too much about what we were doing and we would just go around and build uh, farms out of individual holdings so we would aggregate. aggregate. And we, we took a similar uh, approach to the Sydney aggregation and we finished up with a site that you would just you know, die for really. And uh, we, so we bought four separate buildings, uh, two on George Street and two on York Street. The two on York Street were single vendor, Carlos Zampatti, and then uh, two separate buildings that we bought on George Street with the intention of uh, building an office building. And uh, as we progressively worked through the economics of that, it became quite apparent to us that there were higher and better uses than what was being contemplated. And so we consolidated, we, we took the decision to consolidate the four parcels into one and, uh, and then went through the approval process for initially an office building, which we obtained, and then subsequently for a mixed use development that involved the restoration of the historic buildings and also the erection of new tower uh, and the uh, uh, 199 apartments. Why we didn't squeeze one more apartment in there so <laughs> I, I wouldn't have to spend the rest of my life talking about 199 apartments instead of 200. And then, uh, and then we had looked initially at uh, a, re a retail-based podium and uh, took a decision late in the piece to convert to an office component and a, a smaller retail. Uh, allocation and of course that was that was where we landed and we were we were really happy with the outcome uh, it was a huge challenge for us because time is a killer uh, when you've got uh, 72 million dollars spent on on land and absolutely nothing coming in uh, and the exercise from our perspective was well finished up one of more love than 
uh, than financially remunerative. But it, it's certainly something that as a family we're proud of and, and uh, we were delighted as a family to be able to continue to hold an investment in that asset. So. And what's your take on current, uh, say, capital city prime asset values at the moment? Are you still seeing opportunities for potential investment and development in the capital cities, or are you just waiting to see at the moment, given the current conditions? So we've we've subsequently made uh, investments in Melbourne and also in Brisbane, uh, in the right in the city, and uh, we're rapidly building up an expertise in taking old buildings, very old buildings, uh, giving them a proper, legitimate, sustainable, long-term uh, renovation or, in, or upgrade. And, uh, and we've also been introducing some very significant energy cost savings or energy savings that, are, that have got cost benefits. And we're intrigued that others haven't looked at what you can do from an environmental perspective with respect to the res restoration of older buildings. And it's something that uh, we're doing in Australia at the moment and uh, other members of my family are keen to do in other parts of the world as well. So I, I think you'll see more very old buildings um, find their way to us and, uh, and be restored and really sensitively restored. That, that's definitely a driver from our perspective. And is that a major draw card for potential tenants, that sort of sustainability piece? Absolutely. Uh, we, and we're seeing that even with shopping centres that we're involved with, uh, where uh, we have a shopping centre that we're involved with on the Gold Coast and the owners there are very environmentally aware and uh, they've put a huge solar farm uh, on the roof of the shopping centre that's providing uh, nearly 80% of the ambient power demand of the building. It's, it's almost like a power station. <clears throat> and and um, uh, solar uh, uh, collection and interpretation in, into the buildings, particularly retail buildings, is very effective because those buildings are operating principally in daylight. <clears throat> they're using the power in daylight, and they're and uh, it, it's it's just just such a great conversion uh, ratio. And you spend a lot of time talking to overseas investors. A lot of time yourself spent overseas prior to this year. What's the sentiment like that 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 you're sensing from from overseas investors about Australian commercial real estate? There's an enormous interest in Australia at the moment. Uh, you only have to look at uh, the stability of our governments, uh, both at state and uh, national level, uh, the uh, relative power of our economy, the um, way we've handled COVID, uh, and, the, and the, the social discipline that's, com that's contributed to that. And, that they're, they're all very, very catchy as far as uh, uh, an offshore uh, institutional investor is concerned. They're, they're, they're all good stories. Uh, the, the other thing, of course, is that we have a significant capacity to increase our overall capital expenditure on infrastructure because we do have the financial capabilities for that. And um, if you've got 
energy, capacity, uh, financial capacity for infrastructure, then you've got the foundation of an economy. And so uh, with that foundation, you'll get growth. So, so it's not a case of, will this economy grow? It will naturally grow. And they're the, the main themes that uh, come through over and over again when you're speaking with institutional investors offshore about investing into Australia. The uh, Jones Lang tell me that the, the demand for uh, institutional grade logistics assets is about 30 times the output. So uh, for a business like ours, where we would write typically 150 to 200,000 square metres of new logistics asset leases a year, that is new build mm. leases, um, this year we will do in excess of 400,000 square metres. So that's in a COVID year. Uh, from really from the first week in March through to the end of November, we wrote 380,000 square metres of new leases. So that's reflective of uh, the demand side. Um, there are significant limitations on the supply side because a lot of the new premises being built are actually going into uh, existing owner portfolios, like Dexas or Stockland or GPT. And so you've got very little free float of uh, available logistics assets for external investors to participate with. And what are some of the other major trends or patterns that you're seeing on the ground? I think probably the the key one is the expansion of the supply chain at each point. So in addition to the supply chain for fast-moving consumer goods uh, being expanded at the supplier level, where the suppliers are now being asked to carry larger stocks, particularly of less time-sensitive time sensitive to consumption uh, goods, uh, they're, they're growing by around 30%. Refrigerated storage is growing by about 20%. You've got uh, a significant increase in the downstream supply chain lines and also there's now this bifurcation that's taking place with respect to distribution uh, so that for a retailer like Woolworths, they will separately distribute for their stores to their online Whereas in the past, online has actually been just an adjunct to their in-store capabilities. Now stock selection is more across the uh, Ocado group out of Great Britain. It's more their model of um, hub and spoke distribution of goods out of warehouse into last mile, package last mile into small trucks and off they go. We've, we've uh, recently um, leased a, a property to Amazon and Amazon's uh, import will all be by truck, but the output side of that facility is predominantly by motor car, by Uber drivers mm -hmm. doing the deliveries. So certainly the distribution models are changing and will continue to change quite a bit. And that is 
that is providing a lot of um, uh, energy uh, in the logistics area at the moment. It's pretty exciting. And what would you say are the major challenges facing either the property sector in general or alternatively one sector, say retail or commercial office or, or another sector we haven't discussed? What are the major challenges? At the moment, the biggest challenge is, is just land supply land supply in the right locations. Uh, we have significant land supply issues in Western Australia for logistics. Uh, New South Wales, uh, the, the government here has been very responsive to the shortage and has accelerated uh, approvals, which has been fantastic. Uh, Queensland, there's, there's a above flood level and below flood level and the and the we're still seeing the aftermath of the Brisbane floods uh, with leases running off and then tenants wanting to relocate to higher ground so there's there's some issues in that market still uh, and then uh, with Melbourne there's also some supply issues in the higher demand locations such as in the Dandenongs as distinct from uh, Western Melbourne where there's there's a lot more land available. Let's finish with a couple of questions about Alan Fife, the, the person. What inspires you to continue coming to work every day? Oh, the people. We've got an amazing group of young people here who uh, I think at one stage, I used to double the average age in this place. Um, fortunately, through recruitment, we've managed to <laughs> we've managed to dissipate that a little bit over time. but. Um, yeah, I, I don't do it for myself anymore. I do it for the people in here because uh, at our rate of growth, uh, that creates enormous opportunities for young people or younger people, everybody's younger than me, younger people to um, really you know, test themselves because there's no, there's no constraints here as to uh, how they will grow and how the business will grow really. So. That, that's what gets me going each day, young people. And where do you source your information and, and what key metrics do you look at before making a decision? So we do all of our own data collection. So, and our data analytics are all done in-house. Um, we find that shared data has impairments to it or, and also uh, can lead to a lemming type approach to investing. So we will, will definitely identify our themes on the basis of what we can see happening. So for leases that we're writing today to get into the system could be six or 12 months away. So we, the conversations we're having with, uh, with our clients, with the people that occupy the buildings today um, we have that information relevant now rather than having to wait for it to work its way through the pipe. And while other people are waiting for that to work its way through the pipe to make decisions, they're actually out of date by that 12 months. We, we can't afford to be uh, so um, deterred or delayed by that. And I think that going forward, certainly our commitment to data analytics will continue to grow. 
and uh, and we will always make our own music, and and uh, we will definitely uh, work to our tune rather than be dictated to by the metrics that are emerging uh, from the more conventional sources. So that, that's. Two-part question, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received and what's the best piece of advice you can provide? I think the best piece of advice I was ever given was uh, from my father who said never give up. He was uh, Churchillian through and through and he, uh, he always emphasised that no matter how tough it gets, um, uh, you shouldn't give up. I think that for um, our generation then speaking to people coming through, um, it, it is more about making sure that you really love what you're doing. You've, it, it, um, and that's very difficult in a family business because invariably there'll be family members who feel that they would like to be able to make a contribution but is it your real passion? Because if it's not your real passion, you shouldn't do it. What's next for Alan Fife and the Fife Capital business? Uh, we will continue to uh, grow domestically. Uh, that's very important to us. Uh, we have some offshore interests as well, which we would like to see um, further evolve. Uh, for um, for us as a family, um, it's certainly the business is everything and uh, I would like to see some of the family members involved um, look at other things as well, um, just to make sure that there's a bit of balance um, because they don't need to inherit my um, fixations on uh, on the enterprise, but um, I would also add that it's very important that everyone gets brought along uh, in a business like ours. Um, it's very important that you don't strand somebody. Um, make sure that everybody's in the right spot rather than in the designated spot, so to speak. Absolute pleasure having you on this afternoon. Thanks again for your time, Alan. You're very welcome. Good to talk to you.